Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Jordan Driscoll. Most importantly, he is the host of the OGGN Geopolitics Podcast. He also has a day job that I will let him talk about. It has something to do with, with finances and money. So... I'm having Jordan on because as we talk about energy transition on this show, there there's always these great new technology solutions being announced and being highlighted on the show. But it seems like the conversation always comes back to a few key challenges, those being regulations and money. So having Jordan on who deals with both regulations and money talks about it on his show. I couldn't think of anybody better to sit here and discuss with, commiserate with, maybe solve solve the world's <laughs> challenges with. So Jordan, thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, I guess if you wanna if you want to give yourself a a few seconds to to say who you are, what you do, I think now is a good time. Before before you talk, please remember my show is a clean show. So try to keep it, yes. um, try to keep it, keep it for the children. We're going to keep what yeah. PG. PG, PG it, would uh, be good. Yeah. Yes. PG. Yeah. See, so yes, I'm the host of the, uh, the, what I like to call the inappropriately named oil and gas geopolitics show because it, I love all my ratings because they all they all say very kind things. Oh, we love the show, da, da, da. but they're all like, ah, it's very loosely oil and gas. It's really like just whatever it is you feel like doing a, a sermon on any given day, and that's true. But also, it's a free speech zone. I swear quite a lot over there. Um, so yeah, that's uh, I have to I have to I have to play by Joe's yeah. rules. Over Mine here. isn't so much free speech. Mine is more uh, more clean speech. But I'll still let you talk about kind of whatever you want, except I'm going to give you yeah, questions. No, I, please do, yes. Uh, so I love – I've actually said this on my show about your show, Joe. I've said if you want an intelligent show, you should go listen to Joe's show. If you want a witty show, then this is the one for you over here at Geopolitics. But if you want intelligence, Joe's the guy you want. Well, I know that that is the – the way that you advertise your show, that it's more witty and and fun and exciting. I think hopefully we don't ruin your, your viewer base here because we are going to bring some intelligence into the conversation and we well, may we break are. some we boundaries. Are. Listen, you're going to get, we are, we're going to, I'm going to get you the Driscoll bump. <laughs> That's the extra 15 listeners from my show. That are gonna come yes, over. absolutely. Well, I wanted to start with, as we talk about this, First, let's lay down energy transition because energy transition is this big term and it really kind of means something different to, to almost everybody. So so that the audience has a, a standard by which they're listening to this show, let's get your definition of energy transition. Okay. In my mind, uh, and I don't profess to be an expert on energy transition um, or much of anything really, but to my mind, energy transition, it, I would assume, is the process by which you move from non-renewable types of energy to more renewable and sustainable types of energy. I mean, that's it is condensed down as I, I think it is. Now, I kind of think the reality of it is, and I could go on way more of a rabbit hole than you want me to, but I, I kind of think, um, to my mind personally, the real 
thing with energy transition is going to be technology. I don't think the stuff we have today is the stuff that's really going to do the trick. I don't think solar is going to be by, I mean, I think it's all good. I think it's good. We have it. I think we've got, you know, that's all good stuff, but I think the real thing that's going to move us to whatever the phase is after the hydrocarbon phase, it's not what we have today. Um, I think it's going to be fusion or something to that effect. Um, You know, sort of that's yeah. what i think yeah that i think that's a, a a good thing to to highlight and and starting off with the conversation being energy transition is really moving into a more diversified energy space more more market share being in those lower carbon and renewable energies and and that's that's kind of the definition i i like to go with on here and that's what we're we're moving forward with. I like to to say, and I don't know if I've if I've said it on the show itself recently, but I I'm trying to answer this big question recently of how do we have abundant, reliable, resilient, cheap, cost effective power? How do we have that 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 drives our modern life and lets us live with the creature comforts we have? while also being good stewards of the environment, while we can also find ways to reduce our environmental footprint, either reducing carbon emissions, reducing methane emissions, maybe doing more with less. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the how kind of goes into new technology, using the cloud, using using large data centers to to coalesce everything together so we're not all recreating the wheel every time we do something but the the challenge there is that we we are in a global society and what what we're doing here in the US still does impact the rest of the world for good for 100%. good or bad and mm-hmm. i think that's the that's the part that I've been struggling with is that all of the great solutions we're coming up with, I mean, we're, we're only a small portion of the world. So how do you actually get that to people in say South Africa who are having significant issues right now with rolling blackouts and, and very unreliable power. And how do you get it to other areas like, like, different government structures where they could very easily say, we don't like you. We don't like your technology. We're concerned that you're spying on us. So you're not welcome here. Mm-hmm. Who could you be talking about? Oh, that was a hypothetical. I'm not talking about anybody. <laughs> oh, all right. no, no, of course not. No. Uh, so the tricky thing with energy transition in my head uh, from a global perspective is, I mean, take, uh, I mean, take 1996's Kyoto uh, Protocol or Accord or whatever it was called. Um, you had, a, you know, in theory, it was all a bunch of good stuff. Like, yeah, let's not wreck the environment. Let's do something, you know, back before it was cool to be um, onto alternative energies. Uh, looking at you, Al Gore. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, it's slipping out. It's slipping out, Joe. You have to rein me in. It's too early and I'm on my first cup of coffee. Uh, but you have, you know, the Kyoto Protocols. And one of the things was interesting is there's, there's always these, these political machinations, right? So you've got um, one of the reasons why the Kyoto Protocol failed is because China, for instance, was listed as a developing country because it gave them a longer runway to switch over to, to less carbon generation. It gave them less financial penalties. It gave them less burdens for their for all of that. And this was a time when China was already one of the top economies in the world. Okay. And they got themselves, you know, politically listed as a developing country. So they didn't have the same shackles that Britain, the U S take, you know, just about anywhere. Uh, Even Russia was given more stringent um, penalties on that. And so that's why the U S never, you know, you had the bird Hegel act that, that um, knocked us out of that. Uh, 100% bipartisan, by the way, which is amazing. But the bottom line is that, that when you're getting to these different, um, there's there's this political layer that you have to peel back, right? Like, so take China. China is not going to do anything 
that is going to negatively impact their strategic position and their strategic goals. Their goal is to be a pure state competitor with the United States. Their goal is to do the bridge, the uh, ring and belt initiative, whatever it's called. Um, their goal is to uh, reduce their reliance on the Strait of Malacca and to have more access to uh, the Pacific Ocean, which they're pretty boxed in between Australia and Japan and all that, um, Taiwan and, and all those things. They're going to say whatever they need to say in front of the UN, in front of, uh, you know, whomever. Oh, yes, we're all for the Kyoto Program. Yes, we love the Paris Accords. Yes, we do all of this. I mean, they got, uh, when it came to the um the Paris, you know when the U.S. Uh, pulled out of the Paris Accord under Trump, it was it was great PR for them because they were able to say yes, unlike the U.S., we um we honor our agreements, uh, and so they're going to say whatever they need to say. But I mean, they're also like the largest polluter in the yeah. world, and the reason is they're not going to do anything that is going to negatively impact their ability to strategically yeah. compete in the geopolitical so, sphere. So with that idea, though. As you have larger companies who are saying, we need to cut our emissions, we need to reduce scope one, scope two, scope three, arguably because China is such a big economy and they're producing so much, so much of the product that we have, uh-huh. wouldn't that be in, as, as an example, as a hypothetical, wouldn't it be in China's best interest to be doing better things so that they can keep all of these large industries interested in in keeping their their manufacturing in China depends on the economics i mean if it's substantially easier and cheaper and more economically effective to keep using chinese industry to produce whatever widget you're trying to produce um, and China says all the right things publicly about uh, climate change, but doesn't actually do anything. Then you, as the company, kind of get to check the box that, oh yes, yes, they we you know that's all fine. They say they're doing these things, and it's not our job to to wrangle uh, the People's Republic of China. But look at how good the economics are. I mean, I I think sure in a perfect world that would work, but I think the economics and and all of that, I don't, I don't think that'll fly. It sounds nice. I just don't think it would work that easily. Well, I think I think you bring up a good point there that right now the the still cash is king. The economics are running the Uh show, and and even though we see the earth warming and we keep having hotter summers, and and ERCOT is telling us you need to you need to dial your your dial up your thermostats a little bit so that way we don't all lose power here in texas in the developed world there's the there's that aspect don't even get me started (laughs) on ERCOT. (laughs) well there's that aspect of why are we we still need to get the right economic metrics and Mm -hmm. we are not in enough pain yet physically from from climate change and and what have you, whatever you want to add on there to say that it's worth paying a little bit more or it's worth taking less profit to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would even go so far as to say that people haven't, you know, and, and I'm not going to weigh into the whole climate change thing. Just I, I always stay away from it because I just don't know enough. That's wildly out of my area of expertise. I certainly think it's conceivable, even to adult like me, that there's enough human beings doing enough stuff on the planet that there's some kind of effect. I don't know what that effect is. I don't know how extreme or not extreme it is. I can't say I'm not a scientist. I'm not that smart. I'm not the PhD on this call. <laughs> uh, but it seems conceivable to me that there would be some kind of negative impact of, of, of some level. Uh, but... Nobody is going to do anything, like you said, until there's an economic incentive and uh, enough pain to drive them to do that. But also, I think there's going to have to be some kind of a major jump in technology that would make that even feasible. I mean, let's say we'll go back to the China as an example. Um, when are they – actually, we could even go with South Korea. I mean, South Korea is another uh, – not South Korea. Uh, South Africa is another great example. They're – 85% of their energy generation is based on coal. And 
you know, publicly they've made huge promises to the UN and all these environmental groups that they're transitioning by 2050 or 2030 or whenever it is they're going to do this. But the reality of it is they're exactly this much closer zero uh, to actually get uh, to getting transition to anything. And the reason is that there's a huge amount of corruption. There's a huge amount of graft. There is a, I did a whole show on this actually. Um, You've got literal uh, bandit coal mines they've opened up. You've got entire supply chains of illegal unsanctioned coal mines run by their equivalent of the cartels that just sell it directly to the, the refineries and to the coal plants there is too much money being made by too many people in that country illegally, untaxed, that they are not interested in getting off coal. And how do you crack that nutshell? Well, the only way that I can see you can do it is you have to have something groundbreaking in terms of technology that can actually make that no longer as viable. And you also have to have a government that's willing to crack down on the corruption. Again, the South Korean government South African. 20 years ago said that they were <laughs> South African. Yes, sorry. Um, listen, if you heard it here, you heard it wrong. Uh, if The South African government 20 years ago was very big into this whole idea of we're going to do this energy transition, all this stuff. And they were an early adopter is too liberal of a use of the word, but they were an early committer. I'll say that. Um, but they uh, – but once it became apparent how much money there was in the illicit coal and you start getting uh, parliament members getting paid off and all this sort of thing, I mean, it just – they still say all the words. They still check all the boxes with the, oh, yeah, we're definitely doing this. We definitely care. But the reality is they will not touch ESCOM and they will not touch the the criminal element that's doing all the stuff with the, um, with the, the coal plants. So, I mean – I mean, we could talk all day long about what we, the U.S., can do, what France, what the U.K. can do, what Russia could do, I mean, even what China could do. And, you know, admittedly, those are your big your big actors. But there's there's a whole segment of the world that how do you even crack that nutshell, like, like the South Africa's, like the North Korea's, I mean, yeah, really even like yeah. the China's. I mean, China, again, they're not going to disadvantage themselves in a, a pure state yeah. competition. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... It's interesting that the the technology component is so fascinating and we've got so much interesting stuff coming to the market but it the regulation side of it and the the nation states and and where and how they want to approach it is is ultimately a a it's a significant component where they can they can enable or or disable any mm-hmm. any type of growth. Mm-hmm. I, I think a, another example, and I'd be curious to get your take on this. So this show is going to air probably October tenth. You okay? I'll just be getting you are back getting from back Abu from Abu Dhabi from Adapak, one of the largest yep. oil and gas conferences in the world in a very unique part of the world that is also where where um i think maybe while this is airing cop 28 or 27 or one of the cops is occurring in that same area (laughs) and so i all that to say the middle east hashtag energy transition (laughs) the middle east is having they they are very much talking about it and they are promoting Mm -hmm. it and and actively working towards trying to do energy transition. And you know why though? No, why? Tell me. Come on, Joe, you got this. You got this, baby. Come on. Because of climate change? <laughs> no. They don't care about it. They're they're living in a desert. What what else could possibly happen to <laughs> them? Like their climate changed a long time ago. They're they're screwed. It's not gonna <laughs> matter anymore. Um, no, I mean, they they can read the writing on the wall. They can read the writing that there's only so many proven reserves. These are countries that float on a glut of oil-soaked riches, and they know that the clock is ticking on how long they're going to be yeah. in power. Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar are relatively small, relatively un- comparatively unpopulated nations in a part of the world that literally no one would care about if it yeah. weren't for oil. 
the whole reason they're pushing, and they have hugely subsidized yeah. economies, right? Education and all the things, and we've got money to build islands, and we can do crazy nonsense. Um, it's a good thing this will drop after exactly. I'm already back. Uh, <laughs> good, good looking out, Joe. So they've got these hugely subsidized economies and these hugely, you know, I mean, take Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're buying billions upon billions of dollars of U.S. weaponry for their military. How are they affording that? <clears throat> it's not on their agricultural basis. It's not their tourism that's getting them across the line financially. No, it's because they got lots of oil. That's what it is. That's the only thing that keeps a lot of these places relevant. No one would care if it weren't for the oil. They know this, so they've got to figure out a way to stair-step themselves into something else before the party stops. Yeah, that that is what I was thinking. I think it's See, yeah, I knew you had it. It's interesting it, yeah. that they are willing to make that forward push and – it's almost because they they can they have a single voice that they can talk with and say this is what we're going to do they but they also have to yeah like it's a it's a strategic yeah, imperative they do have to do it and and they see that next depending on who you are 10 20 50 year timeline of if we want to stay relevant and we want to keep yep. our way of life we need to have a new economy ready to go. I mean, that's why you see them moving financial services into Dubai and Abu Dhabi and, and uh, even Riyadh. That's why you see things like fashion and history and tourism and all this crazy stuff. And you're like, we're building islands in the middle of the desert. What's happening? What? Yeah, this is what it is. They're trying to diversify that portfolio. So they've got other industries aside from oil and gas, because once oil and gas, whenever that party stops, and at some point it will, they got to have something. Otherwise, those nations just fall apart right then yeah. and there. Yeah. At least, yeah, that's like my opinion. Man. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, I think it is really interesting and, and just a, a fascinating thing to think about. One, looking at the different, different, ways governments are run and really different mm-hmm. different governmental styles and and what you can actually get done with that. And you do bring up a good point on on governmental style because I mean most of those Gulf Coast countries uh, are as near as you can get to an absolute monarchy in the modern world. You know, you've got the Emirs of uh, the UAE, you've got uh, whatever Qatar has, probably an emir or something like that. You've got the the king in Saudi Arabia. I mean, you have people who have not quite, but virtually unlimited power, and and they can decide this is an important strategic initiative and just say, okay, this is now happening. We're going to do this. Um, no matter what you think of uh, U.S. politics uh, or the imperial presidency realistically, the president just doesn't have that kind of power. Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of them could want this to happen or not happen as much as they want. But at the end of the day, Congress is is ultimately going to be the deciding factor there. Um, and with Congress, it's all about the money, right? Where's, where's the economics at? Uh, and again, the UAE, the Middle East, all of those, they can very much look at the if they're, I mean, when you live in a desert and you've only got one natural resource that is non-renewable, the math gets real easy, real fast. When you're in the United States and you've got timber for days, agriculture for centuries, you've got, you know, uh, tons of oil and gas, you've got, I mean, the U.S. has every conceivable geographic advantage that you could ask for, including neighbors that are friendly, realistically. I mean, it's not like we have Russia sharing a 3,000-mile border with us upstairs. Um, And so uh, we have every conceivable advantage, but that also puts us in a position where it makes it very easy for us to go, well, we'll we're too comfortable. We'll deal with this when we feel it. We're too comfortable. We're too comfortable. Maybe we do need to turn up our thermostats just a little bit so that way we can feel that discomfort. Now that's over the line, okay, Joe. I will not. I deal with pain very well. I don't deal with discomfort. And two degrees more over the line. Yeah, I guess. I guess maybe for you. Although, 
you deal with discomfort every day living where you live. Do, I mean, it's it's not bad out here. I'm only like a couple hours from hey, you. Hey, Dallas is beautiful and lovely all year. That's <laughs> fine. Your traffic's outrageous. Your cost of living's too high. Your people are, you know, it's Dallas, man. I don't well, know. Get me out here where I've got lots of land and, you know, I've got my little McMansion on the edge of town. That's what I need. <laughs> well, good, good. We don't have to get into Texas politics. Or maybe we do need to get into Texas politics. Yeah, why not? Sure. I, I don't pay as much attention to Texas politics as I do the global stuff. I'm actually pretty uh, – <laughs> I'm astonishingly underinformed on what's happening locally. I have no clue what's happening in the city. I have no clue what's happening in in uh, in the state. If it's not national or extranational, I can't tell you anything that's going Interesting. on. Interesting. Well, I think it All right, yeah, it's, when we when we look at locally, and I I I also don't know too much about Texas, but I'm gonna make correlations to California. You can see with California things like the duck curve, where you've got excessive mm-hmm. oversupply of energy during the middle of the day because of all of the PV. And mm-hmm. that is like the big problem or the challenge that we see with with a a fast energy transition. But you also see mm-hmm. a lot of I, I would argue a lot of good poly, or economy aside and and other large social issues aside, you can see mm-hmm. a cleaning up of the environment. You can see cars that are are getting good gas mileage and are not polluting as much so you can see changes and and we almost have this what people have talked about is almost a trickle down from the west coast where california put something in place that is a environmental policy and eventually mm-hmm. other places adopt it and from an environmental standpoint california is very clean so I'm curious when we look at something like that, I guess there's two ideas there. One of like, is that a, do you, do you see something like that kind of on a global scale where there is one small player who can make change and that initiates change everywhere else because of the value and the, positive improvements and then after that we can talk about the social i'll let you answer that though because you're you're thinking so i think it um that's a good question so for instance i'm gonna say you you want a real spicy take here that you never thought you would hear from me you're, you want you're going to say really, you like California, aren't you? That is spicy. I mean, I like visiting some parts of California. Visiting, I would never live there. Their tax rate's outrageous, and I'm avaricious. I like my money. Um, but anyway, no, here's my spicy take. This is – this might be this might be off the rails. Probably one of the individuals who's done the absolute most to increase uh, energy um, – I don't know if I would say to uh, increase re- uh, energy emissions reductions laws in this country. Brace yourself, is Donald Trump? <laughs> now, hear me out before everyone loses their mind. Cancel. Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> it's not for the reasons you would think. It's not for the reasons you think. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing, because I, I I did a bit on this, and and I think my last episode actually. So he he pulled us out of um, the Paris Accord, right? Yep. Yep. And um, Biden, uh, President Biden, put us back into the Paris Accord a couple of years later when he got elected, right? So we all knew that. Here's the thing, though. Here's what's called the law of unintended consequences. After President Trump pulled us out of the Paris Accords, at this point, it's something like 20 or 23 states. It's in the low 20s. Have passed localized laws more stringent than anything in the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord was a very toothless 
uh, agreement. There was not; it was actually not as strict as the Kyoto Protocols. It was; it had much softer language and much fluffier timelines and all that. Um, but you know, Trump pulled us out of that. So all of these states in the U.S. start passing more stringent climate uh, uh, protection law. I'm not thinking of the right term here, but I think you know what I mean. Um, they start passing all these much more more stringent than anything in the actual um, Paris Accords, which means for all the people on the other side going, oh, that was a, a huge win getting us out of that. I'm going, okay, well, you actually are now in a worse regulatory situation than you were had you just stayed in it. And for all the people that want there to be um, you know, more done to protect uh, the environment, more done to do these things, then I say to you, you should probably consider the fact that we actually have more of that in this country because Trump pulled us out of it and the states took it in their own hands and and did their own thing, which is a bizarre and twisted irony that I don't think most people have quite connected yet. So there's your spicy take I, this morning. So I, I'm not going to fact check you right here, right now on that. I But assuming that's true, I think that is mm. – it is it, – it's almost um, – I don't, I don't know. Well, ironic. If well, else. I was going to say not <laughs> not ironic, but it is like a, a a beautiful story of of the U.S. and democracy and the unique governmental situation we live in because we do have state regulations that can do what they want under the larger federal regulations. So in that scenario. Every state that said, no, we want to stay, they essentially said, mm-hmm. we're going to up it to make sure we're we're at least aligning with the Paris Accords, doing better than that on our on our own on our own accord. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of them are the usual suspects, you know, like if I remember correctly, it's, you know, California, obviously, Colorado and sort of that whole vein of states. Um and I don't say that in a disparaging fashion. Those yeah. are just the states you would assume would have immediately done something about it. Um, but it, it does – I think it's less about like one person yeah. doing something maybe and more of just what are the unintended consequences that are going to ripple out from this. I mean everything has second, third order yeah. effects that you can't really anticipate. Um and so, anyway, I know there was a long-winded answer to your question that went in a direction you weren't expecting, but I hopefully got a chuckle out of you and dropped a little piece of a historical trivia. Yeah, well, I, I think that that is – it is a good point and kind of goes to that larger larger discussion of where we were starting was, is California a leader helping, helping change the U.S. or change the world, pushing – pushing lower carbon solutions and a lower carbon society. But what you're really saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it one big, large action ultimately does impact and drive multiple actions across the board. So it right now, for good or ill, but there will be ripple effects from all of these things. And they're not always predictable. I mean, you can take the the, the Trump Paris Accord anecdote. You would not have predicted no. that outcome, right? And I don't think most people have necessarily put that together. And I mean, listen, I'm not suggesting uh, I'm not coming out one way or the other for any of these people. <laughs> if you know anything about me, I'm very uh, my own little very direction over here. The very most independent. independent, aggressively so. <laughs> A sovereign citizen. No, I'm not quite there, but. Uh, I don't know. It depends if I, um, you know, how, how my next tax round goes anyway. <laughs> um, joking, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's all these unintended multiple order effects that you have to, to, that you can't, I mean, again, veering off into geopolitics for a second, but it's like getting rid of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a monster and a terrible person. He had a fantastic mustache, but that's about the only nice thing you can say about the guy. Um, I actually have a nickname on him on my show, but I can't say it here. So, uh, anyway, but Saddam Hussein, I think we all know, terrible guy, great mustache, bad guy, uh, getting rid of him seemed like a no brainer, right? Seemed like that was the obvious thing to do, but 
And it, I'm not saying there weren't some positives to that, but there were also a lot of other ripple effects that, that people didn't consider. One, destabilized the um, energy sector for all the obvious reasons. Two, it allowed Iran to actually export the uh, the Iranian revolution to um, Syria because there was now a land route that, you know, Saddam had a very contentious relationship with Iran, so he acted like a direct counterbalance to Iran in the Middle East. And you'll notice that the majority of our real problems with Iran, the real threat didn't come until there was no more Saddam. And the reason is there was no longer a strong, aggressive leader who would do something to check Iran. Um, and then once he was gone, Iran started just doing whatever it is they wanted to do. Um, it's the first time they successfully exported their revolution to another country, started doing more military stuff, started getting into it over Yemen with um, Saudi Arabia, all these things. And again, you got rid of Saddam Hussein, but you now have enabled Iran to start misbehaving and doing all that stuff. So, in, and again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have done it or he was a good guy or don't mistake me, but there's unintended consequences to getting rid of this guy, right? Um, for instance... Now there's nobody in competition with Tom Selleck for who has the best mustache. There's just things that there's no more check and yep. balance on. Yep. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And and I, I, I like that. I, I think we should I think that that is is maybe the whole the whole point of this episode. Maybe that's what what the goal was to to understand that there everything we do every action we take has reactions and it has, it has ripple effects that we don't see. And we don't understand the butterfly effect is 100%. real. Oh, it sure. Sure is. I mean, uh, no question about it. And I think that, that, you know, I mean, it's from everything from energy transition to, you know, it, whatever. I mean, just take your pick of any actions. But so in the case of California, I think there are definite. I mean, California is a significant sized yeah. economy in the U.S., right? Um, it, it, so, if they're thought leaders or if they're doing things right or they're doing things wrong, I mean, whatever the case may be. But it, California is one of the largest economies within the continent or within the yeah. U.S. Um, they are, for good or ill, whatever you think of California, they just are. It is what it is. Um, and so anything they do, you know, it's kind of like the U.S. We talked about the U.S. is going to have ripple effects across the globe and whatever we do for energy policy. But same thing with California in a yeah. microcosm, right? California can make policies that ultimately are going to affect other states because of the interconnected nature yeah. of our union. Um, and there's such a lot, you know, listen, uh, and no offense to my Wyoming brethren and sister out there, but... If Wyoming passes a series of stringent policies for climate change or whatever, it's not going to have quite the same impact economically as California. Let's just be fair. They're two different things. Wyoming is very, very pretty. There's also like 500,000 of you there. There's, yeah. I don't know how many people are in California. A 50 lot. Million. Um, Who knows? You know, yeah. 50 million plus or, you know, so an order of magnitude, like um, 25% of the U S or more, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, so anything they do by default is going to have a yeah. bigger impact on the rest of the country and push other States into um, one direction or yeah. another. Accordingly. Yeah. Very interesting. Very, very good thoughts. I, I do need to push back on Wyoming though, because they have their own TV show with Yellowstone. I knew. Oh, I think that, Oh, is that still a thing? I honestly, I don't watch it, but I think it is. <laughs> Not sure. I actually get a lot of, I get a lot of flack from my marketing director who loves that show. And, um, the first time she told me a little anecdote here, first time she told me, like, oh, you need to watch Yellowstone. I'm like, why do I, uh, <laughs> why so god it's got kevin costner and i just and i knew this was going to trigger her and oh, i'm a no. monster to work with and i just said oh kevin costner is he still working lost her mind absolutely lost her. i was like he's still working good for I'm, him good for him he's he was in that movie you know the postman was it <laughs> i i ironically i said something very similar last night i was watching survivor i'm i'm one of those guys i'm a survivor fan and they had they had advertisements for Yellowstone. I'm like, you know, I'm glad Kevin got 
uh, a good, well-stable paying job because I like him. I, I like him. Yeah. He can go like places. He's a, he's a good, solid human. And I'm glad that he landed yeah. on a, a, a long, a long show that portrays him as a cowboy. Cause don't we all want to be cowboys? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I something, could, you know. maybe some, uh, some aspect yeah, of cowboyism. Yeah. Yeah. I would be, uh, I always lean more Jedi myself, but then I think, uh, the first time I run into a line at Starbucks, I'm going right <laughs> to the dark side. Like anybody that knows me knows I wouldn't last. I'd be, I'm sure there's some things about the cowboy life you like. Maybe the probably the, the saloons. saloons. I like the idea of saloons. Open fires. Uh, open fire firearms. I love my yeah. firearms. Yeah. I could I I could get behind that. Yeah. There's plenty of plenty of good things out there. Well See, yeah, yeah, we can make do. I think uh I wanna start wrapping it up, mostly because I do have another appointment, but I also want to get to the final questions because I think these are yes. these are the ones that everybody likes, and I think you're going to have a good kick out of them. So that Let's first question it. being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Um, uh, recreationally or whatever you want, both. If you if you're feeling spicy, um, I think. Professionally, this one's quite good. I uh, just read it a couple months ago, and um, I think it's good. I had to wheel over to my bookshelf. Uh, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss, is about a negotiation. I think that's quite good. He's a former FBI, FBI hostage. I thought it was a good book. So I would, uh, I would say that right now. My book list changes uh, professionally. I think my professional book list is whatever the last book I read is my favorite. And so this quarter, that's the one. Um, recreationally, I'm a complete and total nerd. So anything that involves um, outer space or swords and magic is uh, kind of my jam. Uh, or anything humorous. I read, um, I pretty much read either political satire, obviously, or I read a lot of um, uh, just total escapism nerd stuff. But I don't know that I have a favorite uh, recreationally. Um it's two Corinthians. It's my favorite book. Uh, <laughs> couldn't help myself. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think um, I, maybe. I mean, honestly, one of my favorites. I'll I'll put it this way. And if you uh, work in energy and oil and gas, all of that, you should absolutely read this. It's sci-fi, but it's a classic, and it's a one thousand percent allegory to this 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 space. Dune, Frank Herbert. Dune. That's that's just it right there. That's what you um if you work in oil and gas and you you in any way like sci-fi, then you should obviously read Dune because it's exactly about Well, this. I will I will have to read it now. I honestly have you not, I have read not been able to get into the movies and if if I can't get into a movie, I, there's I, no I way I can call you read a friend. Book. I call you a friend. What have I done wrong with my life? You never, you never told me about Dune and the allegory to natural resources. Yeah, no, that's the entire story. Is is it's yeah. not even it's thinly veiled. We'll put it that way. All right. Well, the next question is: How do we get to net zero? Um. <clears throat> Well, I mean, as I see it, there's two good ways we can do this. We can either wipe out the entire human population, and that should do the trick. Um, in the event that it's too early for a good genocide, then what I would say your next best option is we really wicked need to get uh, our technology in a better place. We have got to move it to some sort of fusion-based technology in combination with all the other stuff that we you know. I, I think all those things have a place, but the real big – the way to generate power efficiently – is we've got to be able to make safe, cheap, consistent fusion reactors to take nuclear to the next level that will – and it's got to be cheap enough and economic enough that literally everyone will want to use them because it's the mm -hmm. obvious smart thing to do, which is how you get countries like China and India and North Korea and – I mean, in so much as you want North Korea to have access to yeah. that sort of thing, but that's a whole other conversation that we don't have time for. But I think that's how you get there. Or option A. It's whatever yep, at this point. That is – 
I'm just going to leave it at what you said. We can record <laughs> a, a show on, on geopolitics all about how do we get to net zero? Is net zero a- Yeah, I got to have you yeah, on the show. Yeah, now. you'll need to. So now the last question, you actually get to ask me a question. This can be the precursor to the geopolitics show or not, or Ooh. not, maybe not actually. Okay. I, I will ask you this because I've thought about doing an episode on, on my show. Um, and I, you and I sort of talked on the phone about this yesterday and you told me I was wrong, <laughs> which is fine. I love it when smarter people than me tell me I'm wrong. Um, uh, are is, or I got to think I had to word this. Carbon, the the offsets, the offsets. I think they're BS. What do you think? I think that they carbon offsets are. I so carbon offsets are real. If you look at okay. say, I walk outside and I say, okay, I could drive today down the road three mm-hmm. miles and then drive back driving six miles total mm-hmm. with my car or I could walk. And you know what? Sure. If so- somebody will pay me to walk instead of drive because I mm-hmm. am not putting carbon into the atmosphere and I can prove it by having my tracker on my watch and show you that I'm walking. So that mm-hmm. in the very basic sense, that is real. You can do that. You have offset carbon that you would have otherwise used. Now there, and, and that is almost as you can get as stringent as that of saying we have 100% real time monitoring. We are watching everything you do and we know exactly what you would have been doing otherwise. So we can, we can physically calculate the exact amount of carbon that you are not putting into the atmosphere that you would have been putting in mm-hmm. else if you were doing your standard. Process. And this is fairly precise. We've, we've got a fairly good way of monitoring. This. Yes. Now, now okay. I say yes, because I think where you're coming from and, and where a lot of people come from with this is that that is the hypothetical and a very direct and mechanical approach where you are physically offsetting carbon because you're pairing mm-hmm. two things right next to each other. Right. When you talk about like growing trees, there is mm-hmm. there is a lot more fuzzy math that's occurring. And then there are bigger issues like the fact that those trees are going to die in, in 50 years. And you have to start doing like math on top of math and compounding math, you know, accounting. And then you also have the the. Um, you have the wild card of things like wildfires and tsunamis mm. and 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 dealing force yeah, majeure natural dealing things. with nature that could wipe out that entire offset that you've planted and now you have to go back and recalculate everything and also say well everything that was being offset is actually not there anymore that offset doesn't exist and now it's almost like you're mm. going Five years back, I, I just saw a, a thing that the IRS asked for money back from somebody from 1978. Like that's kind of what we could be talking about here. We we plant trees right. today. In 20 years, those get burned down in a wildfire. And now it's like, well, some of that doesn't count. We have to figure out what part of it doesn't count. Now we need to audit your carbon yeah. uh, release. We need to do, you know, IRS can get into the carbon auditing process. That's so good. It, good for them. Let's I mean, all of work. that is like a, so there are major challenges still. And especially what I would say with the nature-based solutions and offsets, but they are real. They are growing as a market segment, carbon offsets. And and because of that, you are seeing more stringent policies and more stringent um, standards. That most of them mm-hmm. are voluntary. There, I don't, I don't know of any that are that are government mandated yet. Yeah. But right. the voluntary markets and how you qualify to get an offset is becoming harder. 
So unfortunately, I can't get an okay. offset for walking yet. But once I can. You wait until I release Driscoll Offset Solutions, <laughs> and then I'll be able to issue yeah. a, a, uh, a, an indulgence perfect, for your carpet. Perfect. That is going to be exactly what I want. <laughs> well, Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Safe travels to Adipac. Thank you, sir. And thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I always love the times I get to talk to you, so it's always yeah. a treat. We just recorded yeah, this absolutely. one. Well, before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, hey, you know, uh, no, I think uh, I guess yes. I should plug my show. Uh, Oil and Gas Geopolitics. If you would like to listen to a witty, occasionally informative show that's a little bit more R-rated than this one, <laughs> by all means, check it out. And, um, you know, you'll, you'll have a few chuckles in there along the all way. All right. Well... Jordan, thank you for being on the show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN, such as Jordan's Geopolitics Podcast. You can find those by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way you can get some from us. Go to my show notes, click on the one question survey link, fill it out, and then somebody will send you stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.